Generative design and the artificial intelligence behind it, I think it's going to do two things initially. You're going to get to market faster and you're going to be able to explore more concepts earlier in the design process. Hello and welcome to another edition of the AEM Thinking Forward podcast, advancing the equipment manufacturing industry. I'm Dusty Weiss, AEM's professional nerd, robot tamer, and podcast host. And in this episode, artificial intelligence is changing the way that products are designed and built. Through a new and emerging process known as generative design, engineers can pilot hundreds or even thousands of component design ideas instead of just three or four. To learn more about how this trend is blowing up their traditional design cycle, we took our members on a tour of Autodesk's San Francisco headquarters and workshop at a recent AEM Thinking Forward event. And in today's podcast, we'll recap how this technology works and what it could mean for your business. It's these sorts of technologies where science fiction becomes reality that we work to present you here on the AEM Thinking Forward podcast. Each month, we explore a new subject area to help keep your business on the cutting edge of the equipment manufacturing industry. So if you haven't yet, subscribe to our feed so that you get an update every time we put out a new edition. And for the day-to-day news of the industry, also make sure that you check out our twice-weekly e-newsletter, The Industry Advisor. Some recent advisor headlines include Caterpillar's autonomous haul truck demo in Arizona, AEM unveils its workforce recruitment toolkit for members, and ConExpo ConAg releases a sneak peek at its 2020 show footprint on the Vegas Festival grounds. Check out AEM.org news for more on these and other stories. So back to this topic of generative design. When engineers are designing a component, typically the way that it works is they draft up three or four designs, then they do some calculations, they prototype the promising designs, and then go to manufacturing with their plans. Now, for every problem, though, there is more than three or four solutions. There could be thousands, many of them lighter or cheaper or simpler than the solution that winds up getting deployed. And if time and designers were limitless resources, it would be possible to test every solution and select the one that made the most sense. Of course, in the real world, you've got to get your product out the door and you've got to make a buck. So if it gets the job done, one of those three or four prototypes will probably do the trick. But that's where generative design is a game changer. Because as resources, you can swap adaptive artificial intelligence for designers, and you can substitute the unlimited computing power of the cloud for our finite resource of time. Bryce Heventhal is the technical marketing manager at Autodesk. Um, really where it's, it, it changes the uh, paradigm is instead of designing the geometry, you're really starting with the problem statement. So you're starting with where it's going to attach to the rest of the assembly. How do I want it to be manufactured? What do I need it to do? Do I need to be light? Do I need it to be strong, not displace or move as much? Um, and then... The main difference is it's, it spits out many ideas because there's really no one idea or one right solution. Um, there's many right solutions, and really we give you the tools to make those trade-off decisions. So maybe I want it machined out of this material, but I want it low cost. Um, these trade-off decisions is really where engineers make their money um, making those decisions, and that's where we're trying to give them tools to make better, in, better decisions more early in the design process. I kind of liken it to the idea that you know traditionally you would have one team of people trying to design a part, and they would go and they would try a design and they would prototype it, and they'd come back and say, okay, here are the strengths and weaknesses, this didn't work, let's go try another one. And with this, that entire process is done on the cloud by computers. 
Yeah, and uh, like I said, in a lot of a lot of teams, especially when I was in, in, in the industry, if we had two to three engineers working on the same problem, that was basically unheard of. Um, usually, it's one guy, maybe two working on one problem, so you can come up with a very limited number of concepts and prototypes. Um, what we're trying to do is basically have the cloud be that team of engineers. So you offload that, you set up your problem, you offload the different prototyping and concepts to the cloud, and then you make better decisions early in the design process. So the old saying goes that a million monkeys pounding on a million keyboards will eventually type the complete works of Bill Shakespeare. Generative design is basically a million monkeys at a million CAD stations solving your design problems over and over and over again. The adaptive artificial intelligence then tests these solutions and simulations, catalogs the performance of each, and learns from its successes and failures. Heventhal told the attendees at AEM's Thinking Forward event that some of the best results are highly unconventional. So if we go to uh, an example from Toyota, um, this is a, a cylinder head that is um, that was generatively latticed um, on the internals. The design he's showing here looks like a typical cylinder head, except it's broken open to reveal a honeycomb-like network of hollow space instead of a solid metal construct. Um, and you'll see it's actually a variable lattice because this was calculated for both weight, but it was also for thermal characteristics. So the, this lattice actually dissipates heat at a better rate. And the really cool thing is when we set up these problems, they're actually manufacturing aware. So I'm specifying, I'm gonna put this on a three axis mill. I'm gonna additively manufacture this on a, a metal EOS printer. Um, so what that does is it basically makes that, makes sure it's already manufacturable. It's taking account for a lot of the uh, stresses and it solves based off of my requirements. But I don't really know which one's gonna be lighter or maybe one's gonna be more cost effective. Uh, it really depends on a lot of variables. Am I making 10 of them? Am I making a thousand of them? Um, so this is really where we're going to start uh, displaying those trade-off decisions and putting those decisions back in the engineering hand. There's really no one solution. Um, there's tons of right solutions, and we want the engineer and designer to make those decisions and or give the information for them to make those um, better decisions earlier in the product development process. Now, make no mistake about it, generative design isn't just the easy button that you get to mash to get an instant solution to your engineering problems. For human engineers working with generative design, the art form is in defining the problem to be solved. With generative design, essentially, sometimes you think you're just throwing it into the cloud and stuff's come, who knows what's going on up there, and then it spits out information. Um, we don't want that. Uh, we want it to be a collaborative experience back and forth. You actually, you, you get information back, you make more decisions, refine your problem, um, then go back and see what happens. Um, so that's kind of what we're seeing. And these are the big three steps with every generative problem. Start off by defining your goals and your constraints, your, basically your problem definition. Um, then you go and generate it, it goes and designs it. This is where you spit it to the cloud and use parallel computing and it's going to spit out many many answers. And then we get into the explore phase where we start interacting and making decisions. And this is an iterative process. When I hit generative, sometimes I'm like, oh my gosh, that came out. Like, and so then I'll set it up a little bit differently because I just didn't even think that that's what the I set the problem. So it's a very iterative process with the computer back and forth, back and forth. And that's actually what, uh, what is the most important part about this entire process. 
uh, is setting up correctly and defining the problem correctly. What, if you put in crap, you're going to get out crap, essentially. But if you actually focus and specify the requirements up early and make sure that you're putting, setting up the right problem and trying to solve the right answers, that's when you're really going to see the, uh, the benefits of the software. So how does this science fiction sounding technology perform in the real world? Heventhal shared a couple of examples, but maybe one of the most cutting edge involves how generative design helped reshape parts for an electric motorcycle company called Lightning. Basically what they did, they're uh, a racing motorcycle, and they're continuously innovating, and they have competitors who are making um, very similar motorcycles, trying to beat the land speed record on electric motorcycles. So what their first thing is, obviously you can improve the uh, powertrain, you can improve the motor, maybe the battery for life. Um, but they, we're, we're a hardware company, so we are software for hardware. So we helped them out with the uh, um, using generative on this swing arm here. That's the load-bearing arm that connects the rear wheel to the motorcycle frame if you're not a gearhead. They wanted to reduce it by uh, 12, for 12 to 15% um, weight. So what we did is we brought it into Fusion, um, and we took that swing arm. And with generative, one thing we do differently is we don't start with the geometry. Um, in this case, it looks like we did, but you start where it attaches. Where does this thing attach to other things? Where do I don't want material to go? Then you could say things like, oh, this is fixed to that, fit, that load. We're going to see this actually see a force. Then we could say we have a couple different um, criteria on how it solves. But this is a real cool part. Is It's actually manufacturing aware, whether it's additively manufactured. We want to manufacture on a 3 plus 2 machine. And then it's going to spit out different ideas. And what they got back from the AI? Well, it's weird. It looks like something that was grown, not manufactured. It looks sort of like a web of bone that arches from just behind the motorcycle's foot pegs to where it bolts onto the rear axle. And above all, it's really cool. Sure, it cut 18% of the weight and actually bends less than a traditional swing arm, but it looks like a prop from the movie Alien. I'll put a link to pictures in the episode description, but you absolutely have to see this. And Heventhal says, with these kinds of unconventional designs, sometimes 3D metal printing is the only way to build them. So, of course, we didn't just uh, um, make this in CAD. We actually went out and 3D printed this. Um, this was a sand casting, so we 3D printed the metal resin, uh, wax resin, the lost resin, um, burnt it out, or made a sand casting around it, burnt it out. Um, and ended up with the uh, final design. But this geometry here, um, without generative design, I probably would not have been able, there's, it's too complex to create, as well as I would have never known where is the most optimal solution to put each one of these members. Um, it would have been a nightmare um, manually modeling this from scratch. Um, anybody cat out there could think they can model that? If you can, you're hired. When I talked to Bryce Eventhal after his presentation, one of the first things I commented on was how weird some of those generative design solutions turn out to be. The bone-like, uh, alien-like geometries get some getting used to. Once you see it, though, it's super cool, and you see nothing out there on the market. And designing that manually in CAD would be it would be impossible. Um, there's no way someone could have manually modeled that themselves. What's the gnarliest thing that you've ever gotten out when you plug in like a use case and a problem into it? What's the weirdest thing it's ever spit out at you? Like uh, the cool thing about AI to me has always been that sometimes it arrives at conclusions 
it completely baffle you and you have no idea how it got there? Yeah, so one solution I didn't get the chance to show today is uh, it actually can spit out welded beams. Um, it's a, like more of a, a welded beam structure, so it's a, for uh, basically different thickness beams. We did it on a car uh, chassis, and the chassis was just completely different than what I saw. And we had several different uh, outcomes and different iterations of it, but it was super cool to see the the density of beams change and distribute along the car body. Like I could have not have been like, oh, there should be a beam here, could be a beam here. I would have just but what had never gotten it right, and it just figured it out for us. It was super cool. So you mentioned that as you're out sort of presenting this software and this generative design process to teams around the country, one of the concerns that you hear then is, well, okay, does this is this going to replace design engineers? And you said, no, that's not the case. Rather, it augments them. Explain that. Yeah, and uh, we hear that from a lot of customers, and I think the media does a great job at making that a fact out there. Um, but really, all we're doing is giving the engineer and designer and manufacturer uh, more options to explore. And we're giving them the tools to explore all these options. Um, so we're really seeing this as a collaborative effort between the user and the machine. So as time goes on, the way that the machine solves these equations is going to change and adapt to you um, and adapt to the users. So this is where it's going to always be a trade-off decision between the, the, what it, designers, engineers, and manufacturers are getting paid for or making decisions. We're just giving them more tools to make better, more informed decisions. What do manufacturers need to do to start experimenting with this generative design technology right now, and what's the case for why they should? Um, I think the case for why they should is, well, m companies, if you get stagnant and don't keep innovating, um, you're going to fall behind to your competitors. And once they get a step ahead of you, it always is harder to catch up and even get ahead of them again. So staying in front of your competitors is paramount in the industry nowadays, especially as technology keeps innovating, new, new tools are coming out to make you better. Um, the easiest way to get is to start with a project. Um, think of a, a, a new, your next a new introduction for a product and use that to maybe say, um, maybe we're going to change the way we design or make this, this design. And that's going to set you up for success in the future. So where do you see the future of this technology sort of in that five to ten year window down the line here? I honestly think this will be, I don't, it, there's always going to be CAD, but it will be a very big sector of that design, engineering, and manufacturing phase. Um, you'll see this technology bleed into different parts of that, that product development process. Um, it's going to become more integrated, um, as well as you'll see that the tools that are available will be able to see maybe I want to make a change here, and it will be. Uh, it will react and say, maybe define it better this way. It will actually learn from you as you define things and set up problems, and then it'll help you explore those problems as well and identify solutions that maybe you would like better relative to the guy you're working with. Um, so that's where it's going to go in the future. Among the AEM members in attendance at this Thinking Forward event, there was a lot of buzz about the potential that generative design and AI could have to advance the design process. Doug Hogue is the vice president and general manager of VSS Macropaper. The, the ability to look at more solutions. We're, we're a relatively small company, um, so you have less people involved, so you're relying on the experience of the people. If you can rely on the computer or, the, or a larger knowledge base to to bring those solutions forwards, then 
we have more opportunity to select solutions rather than having to come up with the solutions, and I think that could be beneficial to us. Um, and so generative design looks very interesting. Uh, to me, a lot of those designs, and it was kind of brought up in the, in the room in terms of questions, some of those designs produced through generative design are actually more expensive solutions when we look at our equipment because we're, we're still fabricating stuff with more two-dimensional technology, a lot of uh, sheet metal or plate construction, um, and these were additive technologies. So it's where would those play in or how could we use generative design in what we're doing uh, where we may not be looking at uh, um, additive manufacturing for quite some time. And Hebenthal will be the first to tell you that generative design is not the solution to every problem. Generative design should be used when it makes sense. Pro every problem is a little bit different. As designers and engineers, you have to attack it a little bit differently. Um, and generative design today can solve 10%, maybe 20% of problems. And then as the technology comes around, as new different constraints and different outcome tools come out, um, it's going to solve more and more of those problems. Um, and you'll see that maybe today it's solving the design and engineering phase quite heavily. Tomorrow it's going to step into the manufacturing realm, so it's going to be able to run your parts faster on your CNC lathe. And it's going to go all the way into the use phase. It's going to change how you use the product as well, and then how that data feeds back full circle and helps both the design and manufacturing process. But like so many new technologies, this one seems to stoke optimism and enthusiasm about the seemingly limitless possibilities. Steve Van Z is the engineering manager at Vermeer Corporation. You know, in product development, the tools that Autodesk does or sells are the very things that we use day in and day out to develop new products and so anytime that there's a, a new development or a better faster more efficient way of doing that we want to be able to look at that um, innovation is a big part of that Vermeer values innovation it's part of our DNA it's part of uh, our founder Gary it was just who he was so if there's ways to make that happen more quickly and more efficiently again that's something that we want to be involved in from your perspective in engineering then, what's the advantage of the generative design system as it was presented to us today? I think it's the opportunity to utilize the constraints of your manufacturing system or performance characteristics to help you develop more options or iterations, design iterations more quickly, and then you can choose an optimized design in less time. When we were looking at the design ideas for that swing arm on the motorcycle today, yeah. I, I was just so blown away because I looked at that gnarly sort of alien looking thing that the AI came up with mm -hmm. and I said, well, a human engineer went to come up with that in a million years. Right. Yeah, I think, you know, that's what will be interesting to see is as you put in the constraints for your systems, what sort of options will come out. You know, if you're just looking for the lightest system maybe it will lead you one way but if you're constrained by maybe your manufacturing processes or the aesthetics maybe you'll come up with a different design option so i think experimenting and understanding that better will be really important do you think that that's a road that Vermeer is going to go down in the way that you design and build your equipment um it's hard to say but it's something that we want to start talking about understanding better because ultimately Autodesk's Bryce Heventhal says the success of the new technology is dependent on the difference it makes for your bottom line. From our members' perspective, what impact is this going to have on the way that they get their products to market? Yeah, and uh, I think it's going to do two things initially. The big two things are you're going to get to 
market faster. Uh, get m- and the next big thing is you're going to be able to explore more ideas, more concepts earlier in the design process. Um, usually you can explore two or three concepts um, and maybe print a couple of those for prototyping, maybe come up with some soft uh, production runs for a couple ideas. Here we're letting you explore a lot more ideas, a lot more concepts, different manufacturing methods, different materials earlier in the development process. And this notion of generative design was just one of the big topics at AEM's Thinking Forward event in San Francisco. We also learned about monetizing machine data, and we toured Autodesk's Pier 9 workshop, where they put engineers to work basically troubleshooting all their different products on some very technologically advanced projects. The coolest thing we saw was a robot that can build CAD designs out of Legos. Yeah, think about how complicated that would be to program for a second. Looking back, 2018 has been a great year for AEM's Thinking Forward series of events across the country. It's in fact a little bit stunning that we only have two of them left, but they are two big ones. On October 16th, we'll be at Purdue University in Indiana, where we will tour the Nanotechnology Center, discussing the university's digital agriculture program and learning about membership business models from Robbie Baxter. Then on November 6th in Mooresville, North Carolina, it's all about data capture and analysis with Shell Pipeline and, this is really cool, Penske Racing. We're going to get to tour Penske's facilities and learn from Amber Mack about technology disruption. Visit AEM.org slash think to learn more and reserve your spot at one of these two events. You don't want to miss the finale, I guess you can call it, of AEM's 2018 Thinking Forward events. If you want to go back and catch up on some of the events that you missed this year, open up your podcasting app and subscribe to the AEM Thinking Forward podcast. We have recaps of our sessions at 3M and M-Hub from earlier this year. Many other great episodes in the feed as well. Leave a comment or a rating if you get a chance because it helps other industry pros find our podcast too. And that is going to wrap up this edition of the AEM Thinking Forward podcast. Thanks to AEM's membership and education teams for organizing a great event in San Francisco. Need another way to stay on top of industry trends? Follow AEM on LinkedIn. Just search up the Association of Equipment Manufacturers to see the news and events that are relevant to you. If you need to get in touch with me directly, shoot me an email at podcast at AEM.org. The AEM Thinking Forward podcast is brought to you by the Association of Equipment Manufacturers. Little Glass Men from San Francisco does the music. And for AEM, thanks for listening. I'm Dusty Weiss.